0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, we continue our series this Advent season looking at various Psalms that reflect upon some of the themes that we're familiar with at this time. So we come to the theme of, of God's love, the steadfast love of the Lord. We won't be looking at the entire Psalm, it's Fairly fairly lengthy one, 52 verses, but you've got the verses there in your bulletin. And as you're turning there, this quote came to mind from Benjamin Franklin, a letter that he wrote in 1789. He said, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You've heard that, I'm sure, nothing is certain except death and taxes. It comes from Benjamin Franklin's letter there. Um, and of course, he's a, being a bit facetious there. He's being cynical, as, as we can become, oftentimes, as, as is typical, actually, of those involved in politics and philosophy and science, as Benjamin Franklin was. But despite the limited number of certainties Franklin possessed, we certainly ought to strive to be more confident, right? to have more confidence. If we take our cues from scripture, we find that we can be confident in a great number of things, especially confident in God and in what he says, in who God is and what he says. So last week we looked at Psalm 126 and we talked about the enjoyment of God's blessings and specifically his call for us to relive and reclaim the joy of our salvation. And hopefully while you're sitting under the preaching of Psalm 126, you're filled with joy, right? Hopefully as you're reading that and and reflecting on it throughout the week, it's, it's increasing your experience of joy of your enjoyment of God specifically, but of joy in general as well. That's how the Psalms work their way into our hearts. First, we understand the content of what they're saying, and then we're able to relate to them on an emotional level. We're able to to compare ourselves with the original author and the original audience to understand what their context was of emotions. Psalm 89 expresses a, a sincere tension between the promises of God and the experiences of the original audience, which, which seem to, to contradict those promises, right? And so there's, there can be this intellectual understanding of the promises of God that is out of accord with the experience of those promises, Like we, can, we can know the gospel and not know the gospel. We, we can know what it says, we can know how to articulate it, but we cannot believe it. We cannot rest in it. We can know about God and not trust him. It's our tendency to doubt the things that we cannot see and to base all of our security upon our present circumstances to... To look at what we're going through and to be filled with a hopelessness, right? To be filled with cynicism. This psalm is another call to to trust in God despite our circumstances. It teaches us to, to hope for success when everything seems to be pointing towards certain failure to trust that God is at work, even when we can't see him. So the tension resolves in this psalm. It ultimately resolves in the New Testament. But even after the New Testament, our faith can still be just as fickle at times as the Old Testament saints, can't it? Don't we go through the same kinds of doubts and failures and frustrations, concerns about the future, worries as we wait for Christ's return, we still focus so much upon our frustrations that the promises of God lose their power. We, we lean on our own understanding and we lose all trust, right? We do the opposite of what Proverbs 3.5 tells us, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And so in a sentence, this psalm teaches that we can be confident in the word of God because of the character of God. We can be confident in what he says because of who he is. And specifically, we can be confident in the promises of God because of the steadfast love of God. We can be confident in his faithfulness. We can be confident in his faithfulness to fulfill those promises because he is a faithful and loving God. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this reminder, once again, to trust in you despite the circumstances in our lives. Lord, we know that that many of us are going through times of trial, are going through times of difficulty, and it's, it's so easy to just get tunnel vision, to focus on that difficulty and that trial and to, to see nothing else outside of it. To see nothing beyond that cloud and to lose sight of your promises altogether. Lord, help us to see your steadfast love in this song, to understand it, And then to see how it applies directly to our lives. That we would both grasp it intellectually and emotionally. And that it would do a work in our hearts to transform us. So may you receive the glory as you do that work that only you can do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump down to verse 19 and read to verse 26. A mascal of Ethan the Ezrahite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, this psalm begins with a title that is unique, A Mascul of Ethan the Ezrahite. This is the only psalm that is credited to Ethan. Uh, it's one of 13 psalms that is called a mascule. So, typically, we just kind of gloss over those words and, and get into the content, right? But, but this is actually an inspired title for this psalm. So it might be helpful to consider briefly what a mascal is and who Ethan possibly was. What is a mascal? In short, we don't know. <laughs> so why do I even say that? Well, it's derived from the verb to make wise or to have success or skill to make wise, or to have success or skill. So if it had the meaning of to make wise, you would think that it's a psalm about kind of instructing those who are singing. It's a teaching psalm. But of all the 13 psalms that you read, they don't generally fall into that category. They don't, feel, they don't sound like teaching psalms, like that's their primary purpose. And so most think that this is a musical term, that recognizes the skill of the composer or the poet or the musician or all three, as potentially this uh, composer was. Right? He's probably the one writing it and composing the music for it and, and the one singing or one of the, the ones leading the singing. So that's probably where the term or what the term masculine means. Now, Ethan, the Ezraite, we, we know a little bit about him. Ethan clearly authored Psalm 89, but he's probably also known as Jeduthun. And there's three other psalms credited to Jeduthun: Psalm 39, Psalm 62, and Psalm 77. And the reason why we think that that is the case is because in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 19, we read this, the singers, man, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound bronze cymbals. So there's singers of the Levitical community who are in charge of the cymbals. There's three different choirs, and it, in, and it includes Heman, Asaph, and Ethan as their conductors or the ones leading the choir. You don't necessarily get it just from that First Chronicles 15 passage, but when you look to 2 Chronicles 5.12, we read this. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. The only difference there is Jeduthun and Ethan. Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. So that you have... This Levitical community is all divided up into sections. Singers with different responsibilities and Ethan, also known as Jaduthin, if we put these two texts together, would have been the leader of one of those choirs. And as we read Psalm 89, it's it's common to understand this as having been written uh, during the exile. But Ethan... Slash Juduthan would have lived during Solomon's reign, several centuries, two centuries before the exile. But if we understand him as being the leader of the choir, what we would, what we, the conclusion we would come to is that this was written by that choir, right? This is a, a psalm that's composed by the choir that was founded by Ethan the Ezraite. Right, he's also recognized as one who was wise in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. All right, so there's kind of the, the context of this psalm. That's the, the title. Let's get into the, the first section here, verses 1 through 4, and consider the promise of steadfast love. So if you're following along in your outline, the blank here is promise. It's the promise of steadfast love. <laughs> he opens with verses 1 and 2, two activities that we will enjoy or engage in forever. One is to sing of God's steadfast love, and two is to declare his faithfulness. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Generation after generation will declare God's faithfulness, and we will sing of his steadfast love forever. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. He's just declaring the same thing there. Verses one and two speak of how we will engage forever in singing of God's steadfast love and declaring his faithfulness. These are our covenant characteristics of God. They're characteristics of a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. They go before him, as he says in verse 14, which we, we didn't read, but it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. They are defining foundational characteristics of God. And because God is always loving and always faithful, we will sing and declare his praises forever. So confidence in God's character, confidence in who God is, how he's revealed himself in his word, carries us through times of trial and despair. Reflecting upon the attributes of God inevitably will have an impact upon our emotions. It will bring a sense of, of rest. It will bring a sense of confidence. It's not a name it and claim it theology. You want confidence? Just, just name it, claim it to be yours. That's, that's all you got to do. No, this is a knowing God and becoming like him theology. When you have a confidence in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, it's going to have an impact upon your own love and faithfulness, your own integrity, and your sacrificial service of others. And so he goes from there to verses three through four, reflecting upon two forever promises. So two activities that we will enjoy forever, his steadfast singing of his steadfast love and Declaring his faithfulness to all generations, now he goes into two promises that will endure forever. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Very similar language there, speaking of the steadfast love and faithfulness, but now related directly to two promises that were given to David. In fact, you can go all the way back to Abraham to see the origin of these promises. But, but the psalmist here is focusing on the language that was given to David, that he would have offspring forever and, he would be, and that God would build his throne for all generations. So these promises, they do receive their initial and partial fulfillment under the reign of David. But of course, if they're a forever promise, then... It will go beyond David and his lifetime. This is now two centuries later. The fullness of their uh, promise or their fulfillment is not established until David's greater son comes, right? King Jesus. And at this point, the people of God are, are in exile. David's throne has been destroyed. They don't even know, the, the offspring's been scattered everywhere. They have, have no idea of how, how to keep track of the fulfillment of these promises at this point. Isaiah prophesied that another king sit, would sit on David's throne and would bear the weight of the government upon his shoulders and that he would reign forevermore. We read of it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's the very promise that we see the angel Gabriel giving to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. But again, at this time, for the original audience, and, and maybe even for us today, these are the precise promises of God that seem to have failed. The exile jeopardized the line of David and it destroyed his throne. And today we oftentimes interpret the delay of Christ's return as an admission of failure. And so the remedy, what is the remedy? What do we do in that state? How do we respond to our circumstances? We sing. We sing of God's steadfast love. It's to sing of the promises precisely when their fulfillment seems bleak. When everything we see seems to point to certain failure, we sing. And, and that looks like foolishness to the world. But God chose the foolish to confound the wise. And so we act foolishly with confidence. We sing of God's steadfast love and of his promises, trusting that they will come in his perfect timing to their full fulfillment. And so when we are declining, when we're on the brink of giving in ourselves, we must look beyond our circumstances. And we can confidently declare God's steadfast love and faithfulness. We can remember God's promises will never fail. And the promise in this psalm is exhibited in verses 19 through 26 by the presence of steadfast love. So again, if you have your outline, it's the presence of steadfast love, verses 19 through 26. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. This is a picture of God choosing David. You, you can reflect on 1 Samuel 16.1, where Samuel is called to anoint Jesse's son, David. And then you have the promises given in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Verses 12 through 17, where God's covenant is given to David. And we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with uh, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, These are the promises given to David. God will help him and strengthen him in his might. He exalted him and anointed him as king. He promised to remain with him and to sustain him. And so God promised and blessed David as king of Israel. He led him and he, he carried out his political and, and religious responsibilities. He led him as he carried out those responsibilities. And he ensured that David possessed favor among the people. And he gave him superior military strength. So God prepared David for the task that he gave him. And in fact, he began preparing him well before he was appointed to that task. He matured while he was unknown, while even his father ignored him out in the field, didn't even bring him in to be anointed. Jesse had to say, Is there someone else? Is someone missing from this lineup? And so God prepared David as a young shepherd. He's being equipped for the task of a king. Jesus matured prior to his earthly ministry as well. Shockingly, maybe, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52 Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was. Being prepared for his earthly ministry, in his humanity, he was increasing in wisdom, increasing in stature and favor, not only with man, who was getting to know him, but with God, who knew him for all eternity, but now in his humanity is watching him mature, watching him prepare for the task he had willingly accepted. And this is true of everyone, isn't it? God has called us, everyone that God has called to lead, God prepares and equips for that task. God has given this church elders and a deacon who who serve you well, and each of them were being prepared for their task before they began officer training. In fact, their willingness to serve without the title was part of their evidence or part of the evidence for us that God had called and equipped them for leadership. God was already using them in that capacity, preparing them. And that does relate to all of us, right? To be content to serve in whatever capacity God has presently brought you to. To be ready for a greater responsibility if and when you're called upon. Let us depend as well upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We speak here of, the, of David being anointed with, with holy oil. We've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to faithfully carry out the task that we've been assigned. And so whomever God calls and anoints to a certain task, he will ensure that he is properly equipped and strengthened for it. So we need to be filled we we need not be filled with fear of being inadequate, right? Of looking at our circumstances, looking at our current skill set, and thinking I I can't do this because none of us are adequate apart from the Spirit's help. Right? It, it requires a dependence upon God, and if God has called some to lead, then. He's called others to joyfully submit under that leadership. And so you cannot really speak of authority without also talking about submission, a willingness to come under that authority, that leadership that God has placed over you. And of course, that leads to opposition. Opposition those who are actively opposed to the leadership that God has established. And you see that in verses 22 through 23. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. He will not be outwitted by the enemy nor humbled by the wicked. God will crush them and strike them down. In David's life, he exhibited an uncommon confidence in God's ability to protect him from his enemies. He seems to always be running, seems to always be chased by someone, and yet we find over and over again his confidence in the Lord. And maybe he wasn't exactly experiencing that confidence because of his circumstances. It's, It's obvious that he wasn't. But he was composing songs so that he might sing of God's faithfulness, of God's protection, of his care, in spite of his circumstances. And so David exhibited that confidence in God's ability to protect him. He wasn't preoccupied with their threats. He wasn't discouraged, even when he was surrounded by enemies, because he knew God was with him. And too often times, leaders today are driven by people-pleasing. I see that tendency in myself. To compromise standards and passions in order to address every complaint that's raised against them. But complaints oftentimes come from an ungodly source, as we see here, the enemies of God. I'm not saying every complaint comes from the mouth of a, a wicked enemy. But oftentimes it does come from an unhealthy place. And if God has promised to deal with our enemies, we should feel the freedom to relinquish the need to appease them ourselves. To spend all our time worried about what others think. To fear their reaction. The close of our our section here, verses 24 through 26, says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and my name shall be his, or shall his horn be. Sorry, in my name shall his horn be exalted, and I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Again, both attributes here. You will, in verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love, we come right back around to those attributes that we started with. The same ones that will be singing about forever and declaring to all generations are now here described as being with David. What does it mean that his horn will be exalted? It's, it's this rise in, in authority through God's name. A rise in experiencing God's blessings. Because out of, out of the, the horn was, was the blessing of, of oil that is poured out upon those anointed as king. And so it's talking about this, this rise of, of authority and blessing that he'll experience because of his union with God. His kingdom will expand to the borders of the promised land. So again, this is speaking 200 or two centuries after David, King David, and it's speaking of a future David, a future king who will sit on the throne of David. And he's stretching out to grab the sea in his left hand and the river in his right hand it's, it's talking about expanding the borders of God's kingdom under the reign of Christ. And of course, that, that takes place until we reach the new heavens and the new earth. And it closes with this thought. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. This is a reflection upon what we read in, in uh, 1 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And yet David is never recorded anywhere as calling God his father. It does reflect messianic language that you read in Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Right? And yet it, it, it points to one who was sitting on the throne of David. It anticipates the more than 60 occasions in the Gospels where we find Jesus referring to God as Father. The only prophet to really do that in any significant way. And so if the presence of God's steadfast love is exhibited through the life of David, how much more is that the case in the life of Jesus? And I do encourage you again to pick up a, a copy of, of Love Came Down at Christmas by Sinclair Ferguson. It's an Advent devotional on, on Christ's embodiment of the love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. That you can look at the definition of love from that chapter, and you're reading a description of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't simply experience God's steadfast love, right? he, he is the perfect representation of God's steadfast love. And maybe you feel like the the promise of God's steadfast love has failed in your life. Maybe you feel like those who had just been exiled who think that the promises of God have failed. Maybe you question God's love for you. If you think that your sin has has cut you off from experiencing God's love, there is a sense in which you're right. Right? Sin does separate mankind from a perfectly holy God. And it doesn't make sense that you should have access to him. You should feel a sense of of deserving the wrath of God. But that's what makes the love of God so precious, right Because his love is most clearly seen in the way that he bridges that separation between fallen humanity and his holiness John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life so God from the depths of his own love gave His only son to the world. And when every earthly circumstance was pointing towards certain failure as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus was propitiating the wrath of his Father. He was bearing the wrath of God, he was satisfying God's justice in our place and he was doing it on behalf of everyone who believes in him. Because Jesus endured the unmitigated wrath of God, you and I can know the steadfast love of God now and for all eternity. And that's cause for great confidence and joy and thanksgiving. And so let's respond with that even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this psalm, a reminder of your steadfast love that's portrayed in your promises to your covenant people, not only under the old covenant, but in the new covenant as well. And we, experiencing, we experience many of the same trials and tribulations and difficulties in this life that they experienced as they awaited your fulfillment of those promises, we too Long for the return of our Savior. We long for his return to make all things right, to bring justice into this fallen world. When we look at our circumstances and oftentimes we lose sight of your promises, we even think that some of them may have failed. Lord, when, when that is the case, when, when we sense that in our minds and in our hearts, may we respond like this choir did, like Ethan did, respond by composing a song of your steadfast love and faithfulness. That our hearts would be filled with satisfaction. That we would be confident in your promises because of your character. And Lord, help us to respond in that confidence even now.